I'm glad I'm with you. Three footnotes. The current issue of Christianity Today has an article on refugees in Germany. And there was a, a brief quotation from a man named Marcus Ziener, who was a veteran journalist with an influential German newspaper. And he made this comment about Luther and in the German discussion about refugees. He said, because Luther struggled, the rest of us who struggle can identify with him and find him very approachable. And that seemed to fit well with the observation that several of you here and at 1030 made last week and other times about how human uh, Luther is, was. And I thought you'd be interested in hearing that comment. The second thing is, there's nothing I say this morning that is not comprehensible. We're going to talk about theology, and I think sometimes people feel that's, that's like physics or differential equations or something like that. I can only promise you nothing that I say is going to be outside your ability to grasp it. The problem is there's probably too much. So if at any point you say, time out, I'm, you're, you're going too fast, I, can't, I'm, I, I think I'm getting it, but would you repeat something? Tell me, and I'll stop and I'll repeat. I would appreciate it if you would not fall asleep. If you made the trouble to come here on a Labor Day Sunday, I assume you're wide awake, but I would appreciate it. Third thing is that the last observation last Sunday on the meaning of the past for the Reformation was this. Christian doctrine is ideas from the past which various church bodies have formally received as binding on their consciences and by which they have agreed to live and to teach. And the question that arises is, why do bodies of Christians do that? Why do we have doctrine? And what I want to talk about today are four functions of doctrine. So let's start with the first one. Christian doctrine its first function is to express concisely the truth that is necessary for salvation. Now, that is, a, that is a big statement and a big purpose, but it's the kind of thing that gives doctrine its cutting edge. Christian doctrine expresses concisely the truth that is necessary for salvation. And let's talk about three items related to that. First of all, Christian doctrine discovers this truth by reflection on Jesus Christ as scriptures reveal him. That is the center of all Christian doctrine. And it's not that every theological statement or every doctrinal statement says something about Christ, but it says something that is related to who Christ is and what Christ does. 
So all doctrine, all Christian doctrine, that is sound doctrine, finds its truth in Jesus Christ as Scripture has revealed him. And of course, that makes Scripture really important, and we'll come back to that a little later. The second thing that I think we ought to grasp about this is that if all you and I had was the Bible or, say, the Apostles' Creed, I don't know if we'd live a week before we started having questions. And Christian doctrine grows and reveals the depth and the beauty of the truth about Jesus in response to questions. Now, all kinds of questions can trigger this uh, aspect of Christian doctrine. There are three human experiences in particular that trigger this. One is pain, individual pain or national pain or pains in between. Pain gets your attention. You know C.S. Lewis's famous statement that uh, God whispers to us most of the time, but in pain, he shouts. And when we experience personal or church or state or national or world pain, the questions start to arise very fast. The second thing that triggers questions is change. The proverb is, we don't like change. And change is inevitable. It's inevitable in personal life. It's inevitable in a church's life, a national life. It's inevitable in the world. And changes create all kinds of questions. The third thing that generates questions that Christian doctrine has to deal with is new knowledge. Um, you can, I mean, let me give you an idea of some of the questions. Maybe that's the best way to go about this. <clears throat> what do Christians think? What does Christian theology say about homosexuality? That is both a major cultural change in our country, and with it has come new knowledge. A second idea is how shall people who believe that the scriptures reveal God's thought handle something like evolution? Or how do we think about immigration? Or how do we think about hunger in America? All of these are questions that arise from change, from new knowledge. And the new knowledge in particular has hit us very Hard, very much right in the face in the last 50 or 60 years. What do we think about abortion? What do we think about in vitro fertilization? What do we think about designer babies? What do we think about euthanasia of the old and of the undesirable? These are, these are not theoretical questions. These are things that are happening or are being proposed to happen all over the Western world at least. And so what does Christian doctrine 
say to us about that? And as Christian as Christians try to respond to these and dozens of other questions, they want to go back and ask, what do we know about Jesus Christ? How has the church reflected on Christ for the last 2,000 years? And how does this bring that truth to bear on these questions? It doesn't happen fast. I don't know if you all realize this, but the statements of the Nicene Creed, the notion of the central Christian doctrine of the Trinity required about 300 years to develop. It takes a long time for the church to get its head and its heart around the truth that is necessary for salvation in response to all these questions. So let me say one more thing about this, and then I'd like to get some feedback from you. The third thing about this truth that is necessary for salvation and these concise statements, which we call creeds or um, catechisms, things like that, is that this truth requires a human response, which Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, called passionate inwardness. Some some of you, I know, grew up in churches that said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And I did that until I think until I was married. The church I worshipped in with my parents said the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer every Sunday that we worshipped together. And you say that, and I mean, I learned that. I think I knew that creed before before I was five years old. I just knew it. I just said it. And it was a collection of English words. And in time, as God works in our hearts, it wakens us to the realities those words are sort of windows into. And let me give you one example, and I'm sorry it's from my own experience, but it communicates the point really well, I think. When I was 28 or 29 years old, I went through a fairly brief period of a few weeks when I was terrified of dying. I was having nightmares, and I dreamed that I was looking at myself lying in the coffin in the funeral home, and I woke up from these nightmares, and I mean I was drenched. And I don't, I don't perspire easily. <laughs> I, I was soaked you know, I'd get up and I'd say, my gosh, what was that? And I was, I was really anxious. And I got back to sleep. The next night happened all over again. I don't know how many times it happened, but the last time it happened, I'll never forget. This is the middle of the night. I'm thinking, I don't want to wake Carol up. But here I am with my drenched pajamas again. So I get up get out of bed, go in the bathroom, close the door, sit on the john, and think to myself, what is going on with my life? Where, where does this terror come from? And into my head popped, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And this voice inside of me, you can call it the Holy Spirit if you want to, I'll be right there with you, asked me, well, do you believe it? 
or do you not believe it? And I can remember sitting there in that dark three o'clock in the morning moment saying from the bottom of my heart, I do believe it. And I kind of went back to bed with the idea, come and get me. (laughs) That's passionate inwardness. But anything that professes to express concisely the truth necessary for salvation needs to become inward. And, of course, it has for you all. And thank God it has. So before I move on, talk to me. Am I making sense? Is there anything that raises questions or do we need to talk some more here? Because I feel like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put layer on layer here and I don't want to just go way too fast. When you can say yes, it is a great comfort. I, yes, I do believe it is. And, and that could happen anytime, any place. And places like Brandywine and others encourage moments like that. And thank God it does. Can I move on? Yeah. No? No? Yes? Let me kind of repeat your question. Her, her statement was, a number of people would like to know, how does a liberal interpretation of the Christian creeds come into existence? Yeah. Is that fair? Especially when, I mean, I know that's not a simple question, and this is a long answer, but it's kind of like, no, they don't. If you, would, if you would hold that thought until the third function of Christian doctrine, we'll come back to that. And at that time, I will not answer your question either, but we'll have <laughs> we'll f- focus the question better. Patrick, yeah. No, no, of course it's not. But you know his answer. Go back and look at what the church has thought for 2,000 years and now figure out your problem. Pardon? What, what, What I think it is, I think Jesus would write out, go back and look at what the church has thought about this truth necessary for salvation since Jesus' time. And now with your new hot-button issues that seem to scramble your mind, go figure it out. <laughs> the, the, the only promise he gave was that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. And, and he does that apparently in, in, with the mess we create. And it just takes a couple of hundred years sometimes. But we start where we are. Yes. I don't know your name. Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. Uh, 
practicing for different, or discussed in different ways, we want to somehow shape them to make us feel better and make us a better Christian. But this is the same issue that's going to exist in these people for a long time. And they're, they're not new. So the doctrine doesn't change. The perspective doesn't change. Our view and comfort on how far we want to stretch the truth might change. But this isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun. This is a problem. Like, it's not new. So maybe that can be a comfort in all these questions that Chris came up with. Nothing new we're dealing with. It is, it is, and it's thorny sometimes. G.K. Chesterton had a great statement one time when he talked about the democracy of the dead. He always wants to give the dead a voice at the present table, and books are about the only way we can get access to that. That's really great stuff. So you want to, yes. I don't know your name. Emmanuel. Hey, Emmanuel. It's not a contra- I don't know how it would be a contradiction. How we deal with it, how we, how we express the love of God in Jesus, when we talk about doctrine, that's a, that's a thorny one. And that's really kind of the second function of doctrine. Could I go there and see if it speaks to your question? We'll give it a try, Okay. Second function of doctrine. Ready for this? Doctrine sets boundaries. Suppose you sit around a table. Say there are ten of you around the table. And you have a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Reformed Jew, an observant Jew, an atheist, and a couple of liberal Protestants, and you. And you put the Apostles' Creed on the table with a copy for everybody and say, now let's say this together. (laughs) They won't do it. It's not because they're bad people. They don't believe it. The doctrine puts up boundaries. You're either on one side or the other. Now, before we get to Emmanuel's question, which, if I understood you, is really good, can you all remember some of the boundaries that got set up in the Reformation from the eight presentations we had? Infant baptism versus believer's baptism. That was a... Say it again. Transubstantiation plus the Lord's Supper as a memorial. Yep. Justification by faith became a major discussion point, major boundary. Yeah, what else did you all see? Hell versus purgatory, purgatory. yes. Or even the existence of purgatory, yes or no? Indulgences. 
Yep, bring people out, buying people out. Don't go there. <laughs> what, what, other, what other division, what other boundaries in the Reformation? Different levels of society. They were there anyway. Paul? Authority of the Pope or councils of versus the authority of Scripture. Yeah. Huge. Is the Eucharist the center of what we do when we get together, or is the preaching of the Word the center of what we do when we get together? All of these things were there were boundaries. People people chose sides on this stuff, and. Um, Josh, in keeping with your old books idea, I have a semi-old book. This is, I don't know where in the world I got this book. The writer is Roland Bainton, who was a, a major church historian at Yale, who, by the way, Yale Divinity School has had a sequence of marvelous church historians. But this is a story of the whole church called the Church of Our Fathers. And in it, he reproduced... A, an account, a written account of a trial in Holland of a young Mennonite woman named Elizabeth. It took place, well, here's part of the record. On the 15th of January, in the year 1549, Elizabeth was taken. The examiner asked her on oath if she had a husband. She answered, I cannot take an oath. All I can do is say yes or no. What persons have you taught? I cannot tell you. I will confess my faith. We will torture you. I hope that with God's help, I shall keep my tongue and not be a traitor. What do you think of the most holy sacrament? I have never in my life read in the Bible of a most holy sacrament. I have read only of the Lord's Supper. Why have you been baptized again? I have not been baptized again. I have simply been baptized. Do you think baptism saves you? No. All the waters in the sea cannot save me. Christ saves me. Then, says the record, they tortured her with thumbscrews till the blood gushed from her nails and she fainted. Coming to herself, she would not give in. Then she was sentenced in the year 1549 on the 27th of March to be put to death by drowning. So Emmanuel, I would say there was not a lot of love in that moment. There was a lot of concern about Doctrine, and that's part of our heritage of the Reformation. Let me, let me lighten this up just a little bit. Some, some time ago, a guy um, <clears throat> was driving across a bridge, a big bridge, I don't know where, and he saw a guy ready to jump into the river and kill himself. He pulled over to the side, got out of his car, ran to the guy and said, don't jump. What's wrong with you? And the guy said, nobody loves me. And the guy said, God loves you. 
are, are you a, are you a Christian? He said, "Well, yes, I'm a Christian." He said, well, "I am too." And he said, well, "Protestant or Catholic?" And he said, <laughs> "It gets better." Protestant, me too. What franchise? Baptist, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, me too. No kidding. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? Northern Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. Uh, Me too. Northern Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or 1912? 1912. Die, heretic. And he pushed him. That's our reputation. What? So, so, to ask the obvious, what's the risk of having boundaries? Cutting people off. Cutting people off. No love. Not knowing the truth. Not knowing the truth is also part of it. Truth is pretty big. Let's look up. Did you all you all have Bibles, or at least on your phone? <laughs> there's there's something that's worth pursuing here. Um, why don't you people on this side look up First Corinthians, chapter eight, verses one and two, and you people on this side, would you look up First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verses nine? I think it's verses nine and twelve. We'll we'll get to it in a minute anyway. And, you know, Brian, you don't have your Bible. I was going to, since you came up with your statement about the truth, any of you have 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Um, why don't you begin right in them? Well, read verses 1 and 2. Would one of you read that feels comfortable reading? Yeah, Josh? I just can't tell you how powerful that is to those of us who love truth. Because truth, Brian, your question was going there. Truth is so big. And when I, we think we know it. And Paul's statement here is, if you're not careful, that'll puff you up. It'll make you arrogant. And, And the guy who thinks he really knows something doesn't really not yet know it the way he ought to know it. Doing Christian doctrine requires a great deal of humility. How about chapter 13? What did I say? Verses 12, 9 and 12, was it? Then I shall know 
Twice, twice Paul says in here, knowledge is partial. We, we just, no, no, human, no one human being and no single body of, of people knows everything, which means there's a lot we don't know. There are implications of truth that we miss. And if we drive hard for the truth, we miss Emmanuel's concern that the love of God doesn't emerge in all of this. So it's important to have boundaries. The, the real challenge is can, can we hold the truth as we grasp it as a body of people today and somehow, somehow remain open to the possibility that we may have more to learn I've always thought this. Anytime you come to the interpretation of Scripture, anytime, Patrick, you come to these hot-button issues that just really scramble us, addle us, we don't know what to do, we're going to interpret differently. And when believers in Christ interpret differently, it seems that, first of all, maybe above everything, we need love. Love for Christ whom we serve and claim to represent. Love for the truth, which means I may need correction. And love for our fellow believers or even non-believers, both those who agree with us and those who disagree with us, because that's the only way the world will ever know we're Christ's disciples. So this building of boundaries is a really challenging and necessary thing. So, you guys doing all right with this? Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, the very next sentence, or the very next verse is about, you know, faith, hope, and love, like Paul says, the greatest. Love. It is interesting. Very hard to do. By the way, what happened in the back? (laughs) He went to sleep, Debbie. Yes. Well, you're right. I mean, the, the, the principle applies to everybody involved in the conversation. But I can't do anything about him. I can only do something about me. And we can talk to each other, but the mystery in that person's will 
is only accessible by the Holy Spirit and by the words and the actions that we have with each other. It's a faith issue. It's a love issue, and those are those are moments that truly test faith. You're right, Josh. I don't know how to. It's just not quick. Paul's statement is, how, how can I <clears throat> hold the truth as I understand it? How can I express it in love? And how can I avoid watering it down with somebody and still have a conversation? And the only answer to that is go try it. And it's hard. And see how hard you have to fight to win an argument. Or if you can just listen for a while. That is really hard stuff. I, I think. I, 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 what comes to mind is the um, sequence of things that we need to ask for our faith, asking for forgiveness. And, and it's, it's just as you're nurturing knowledge. Knowledge comes at the first. Self control physically, and all those things. But at the end of it, it's love. So it seems to me that the pursuit of knowledge is extremely important. It is. Um, It's always a possibility. It's always a challenge. Could, could I, can I move to the third one? Because this is going to address several things. Okay. The function of Christian doctrine is to express concisely the truth necessary for salvation. The second function of doctrine is to set boundaries. That's an appropriate thing. Third, Christian doctrine helps us interpret experience and for this I would like to partially address Marilyn's question where to go Um, and and one of the hot button issues of the day I've got a book here by Dan Villa and Robert Gagnon Dan Villa was a professor of theology now retired at Duke Divinity School And Robert Gagnon still is, I think, a professor of theology 
at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Duke is a Methodist school. Um, Pittsburgh is a Presbyterian school. And this is a book called Homosexuality and the Bible, Two Views. And I wanted to read just an excerpt from Professor Villa's opening chapter representing himself and his view. And he starts off like this. I take the Bible to be the highest authority for Christians in theological and ethical matters. That's a pretty strong statement. Most of us here would say a hearty amen to that. He also goes on to say, which I think is legitimate, although I recognize the legitimacy of tradition, reason, and experience. And I think we do too. It's hard to read the Bible and not use your mind. Hard to read the Bible and not have learned something from somebody before you. Hard to read the Bible and not have it colored by your life experiences. But the ultimate authority is Scripture. That's how we believe. Now, about half a paragraph later, I wanted you to hear what he said. The Bible, remember, the Bible is the highest authority. The Bible is authoritative only in those parts that are existentially and engaging and compelling to give ground, that give grounding and meaning to, to existence. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, really? So if, so if my existence makes me feel like some part of the Bible is not engaging and compelling, I can safely ignore that. And that is an example, Marilyn, in my mind, of how doctrine, behind that statement lies very, and that is a doctrinal statement, but there are other statements behind that that represent a very deep and deeply held set of convictions. And out of that has come his willingness to interpret a certain kind of experience the way he does. And we all do that kind of thing. Sometimes we do it well. Sometimes we don't do it quite so well. But the idea is that what you believe really does interpret experience for you. And that's true of people, whether they are believers, religious people, or total secularists. Everybody lives by faith because everybody has certain ideas that they find compelling and by which they interpret life, the Bible, other people, things like that. And to say that they don't have those convictions is simply to have ideas governing their will of which they are not aware. But it's, it's a very powerful thing. That story I told you about my nightmares about dying. I mean, I, could, I went back after that night, and I never had that nightmare again. So that was, a, that was a very, very powerful example for me of how what I believed really helped me to interpret my experience, that this was a nightmare. 
And that's all it was. And death is death, but it doesn't have to be a terror. But my faith interpreted my experience. Is that your experience? I mean, do you all do that, or is this a new idea? And we all have been. And that's why we need each other for self-correction. <laughs> that's why we need the body of Christ for correction. It's, we're all that way. Manual, yeah. Yeah. Um, I came into the church as a very young man. And um, my fear at the age of Pretty good for a five-year-old. It's amazing. Isn't it great? Thank you. Want to move on? Fourth function. Doctrine expresses concisely the truth necessary for salvation. Doctrine sets boundaries. Doctrine interprets experience. And finally, doctrine helps us to interpret Scripture. And I wanted to I want to take in a little bit of some deep waters here. So I'm going to put something in front of you. Would um, John, would you help me pass stuff out here? Steve, would you help me? If you wouldn't mind, take one per household. I know that's probably optimistic on Labor Day weekend, but mm-hmm. they do have to last till the 10:30 crowd as well. Over the last 18 years, really off again, more than on again, I've been reading and trying to get my heart and soul around, pardon me, the the book of Revelation. And on one side of the sheet you're going to get it says readings from Revelation. This is what you're going to be, what you've got in your hand from Revelation is some pretty good theology of its own, but it is just dynamite. It was dynamite in the first century. And it kind of gives us an idea of how 
Christian doctrine discovers truth from reflection on Jesus Christ as Scripture reveals him. Let's start with the first two statements there. Um, Mitch, Mitch, do you feel like reading? Would you read just Revelation 1.8? And Debbie, would you read the next? Are you comfortable reading? Would you read Revelation 1.17 right after Mitch reads? Thank you. So, Mitch, in the passage that you read, who's the speaker? God. In yours? Jesus. What's the difference between Alpha and Omega and first and last? (laughs) And that's precisely the point. But what is precisely the point is that John, with no comment, puts two phrases, nine verses apart, in which Jesus expresses that he is what the Lord God said he is. Now, remember, John was a Jew, a monotheistic worshiper of the God of Israel who had lived as a nation through 1,500 years of trying to get it into their heads, there is one God. And here is is John saying, with no explanation, no apologies, putting in the mouth of Jesus the words, I'm the first and the last. It only gets better. Um, The next one is kind of long. Let me read that one. They, the 24 elders of Revelation, fall down before him who sits on the throne. And if you read Revelation 4 and 5, there is no mistaking that that is the Lord God who was speaking in in the passage Mitch read. They fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, the next passage. He, and if you read Revelation 5, you know he in this context, is the Lamb, Jesus came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. No, no. That, that's what the elders did before the one on the throne. They fell down before the lamb. This is an act of worship. A good Jewish boy doesn't do this. Jews taught the world that there is a, an impassable barrier between the nature of deity and the nature of mankind. You're on one side or the other. But Jesus is one of us. 
And the language here is the language used on the other side of the divide. What, what's going on here? And then we come back. Um, Judy, do you, feel, do you feel comfortable reading right now? Would you read uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 12? You know, go back, go back, uh, Heather. Look, look back on the verse, chapter four, verses ten through eleven. What did the elders say? The Lord God is worthy of glory and honor and power. Well, glory and honor made it in the chapter five, verse twelve, and for good measure, wisdom and strength and praise are added to it. This is this is worship, full blown. Magnificent. And just for the climax of the whole chapter, why don't we all read together starting, Then I Heard Every Creature. Can we do that? All together. Ready? Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And whom did they worship? Both. The Lord God, the one who sits on the throne, and the Lamb. This, this is Trinitarian language without using the word Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is in all of this. But these words are the ones that make Jesus the revelation of the nature of God. But what do you do with this? I mean, this is John's writing, inspired by the Spirit for sure, but it's John's mind and heart and style. Knowing what he knew about Jesus of Nazareth, trying to get into words the meaning of Christ. And this, this is a pretty concise summary of the truth necessary for salvation. Now, turn over on the other side of your page. It's another copy of the Nicene Creed. Sorry about that. But I put in bold print what it took 300 years to get into print. And the church fathers who confessed that they believe in one Lord Jesus Christ said this about him. He is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's their, what, seven or eight lines summary of Revelation and much else in the New Testament. It's really their very thoughtful, agonized way of saying Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And those are the languages, those are the words 
in their context, in their generation, that allowed them to say what they said about Jesus Christ. And we spend our time trying to figure out what all those words mean. But if you just read Revelation 4 and 5, at least you understand where that comes from. Now, the difference this makes is whether you read Revelation 4 and 5 or whether you read the Nicene Creed or another Christian creed, we now go back and read the Gospels with this in our minds. We read the letters of Paul and James and Peter and John with this in mind. We read about Jesus and we think he is God. We may not formulate it, but if you hand the Gospel of Mark to a Muslim, he may read it and read it in good faith and he will come to a very different conclusion because what he believes informs what he reads just the way what we believe informs what we read. Now, this is really important because there were five solas in the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Gloria Deo. And the Sola Scriptura means, and this is kind of back to what one of you said, Scripture is our final authority. We welcome tradition. We welcome reason. We can, well, like you said, one of you said, we can't escape our experience. But the Scripture holds the place of honor. And how we interpret Scripture will become extremely important in shaping the church and in shaping us. Doctrine helps us interpret Scripture. And now comes the $64 question. And I, I, I apologize, I have to leave you with this. Who decides what doctrine will interpret Scripture? Well, if you're in a Baptist church, the pastor does it. If he's a good pastor, and we have a good pastor, he will draw on the resources of the, the great tradition of the church. But even within Protestantism, there are interpretations that govern, there are doctrines that, in, that interpret Scripture for us. And one of the unanswered questions, unanswered in the sense that we don't get a lot of consistent teaching about this, is who decides what doctrine will govern and interpret Scripture? And it's always, um, Patrick, this is not going to help your question. It's always people. This generation or a previous generation usually, fortunately, but every generation has to reinterpret it, has to re-understand it. And the body of people that does it in a Presbyterian setting or a Baptist setting or a charismatic setting or a Catholic setting will bring something somewhat different to the table. And in every case, the unanswered theological question is, how do we sustain apostolic Continuity.
And I don't think we answered that question very well at all. And I'm not about to answer it here. <laughs> so that's where we are. What do you think? Is that enough said? Are you guys... You good? Are, Lou, are you stretching or... Steve? just the way it is. God made the world that way. If I, read the word, if I read the scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's so much theology in that one statement. I, I, can't, I can't escape that. But how do we understand that? How does that love extend to people who never hear the gospel? How does... See what I mean? You start, you start asking questions. The only people around to answer them are other believers. So we're, God, God, I think God created it this way so we can get to the bottom of Maryland's list and learn how to love each other. Dick, yeah. Yes, always. We must never, ever forget that. That the Holy, we trust God, we seek His guidance, we trust the Spirit to guide us into all truth. And these guys over here who disagree with us, they can't be right. <laughs> it's tricky, tricky territory. So, love one another, seek the truth. And come back for Matthew's sequence. Why don't we pray together and ask the Lord to bless and guide us. Holy Father, we are grateful to be heirs of the great tradition of the body of Christ down through the years. And Father, we we believe that you have placed us in an especially volatile time of human history. And we feel pressures on us from many quarters, help us indeed to look to you, to trust you, to listen to one another, and to pursue the truth, and to pursue love. We thank you for our time together this summer, and we offer our prayers in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.